uh, today may be the uh, the most challenging lecture in the course, right? Actually, uh, and it comprises a large portion. Uh, I guess today we're going over the uh, the six properties of the form, as well as uh, uh, the K metaphor, and it also comprises a large portion of the. Uh, the second part of the midterm exam. In fact, the first, the almost about half of the, that section is just explaining the six properties of the forms. Right, so let's get started. Uh, we, we, we talked last time, the argument from recollection uh, introduced the first two properties of the forms, that the forms were pure and that they were transcendent. And these two properties of the forms more or less uh, tell you what a form is. Right? They distinguish a form from a material object. The ones we're going to talk about today, the remaining four, and these you have uh, this list uh, in that handout entitled Plato's Theory of Forms. Uh, they all explain how the forms are related to this world and to each other. So the forms are also the archetypes for all things. We'll go through each of these and explain them. Let me write them all out for you. Uh, they're ultimately real. They're the causes of all things we'll see in two different ways. And they're systematically interconnected. We've seen before that Plato's unique contribution was sort of spelling out more clearly the nature of objectivity and the nature of this other world using his theory of dialectic. Uh, and we'll see that he went into much more detail than that. Right? that uh, he actually has a very uh, complex and technical theory of the nature of these all other realities that are based upon that theory of dialectic. And we'll see that in the Republic, he uses a series of metaphors or stories or images to explain each of these properties. Uh, and when I ask you about them on the exam, I'll expect that you'll be able to uh, use uh, the appropriate metaphor to explain that particular property. Right, so the cave metaphor right, is used to explain how the forms are archetypes and how they're ultimately real. The sun metaphor from today's reading is used to explain the two ways in which the forms are the causes of all things. And we'll see that we're also going to tell today in class a little story uh, that you didn't read from a later dialogue of Plato called the Timaeus. Uh, so the story from the Timaeus will also be used to explain how the uh, forms are causes in two different ways. And the divided line uh, explains the systematic interconnectedness of the forms. So on the exam, uh, I would expect you to be able to use either one of these diagrams or metaphors right, to explain these particular properties. <coughs> right, but let's remind ourselves of what it means to say that the forms are pure and that they're transcendent. Uh, those were the properties that distinguished them from material objects and showed why it would have been impossible for us to have gotten our ideas of the forms from perceiving things in this world. Uh, those were the properties that distinguish um, pure mathematical concepts uh, from the particular objects we perceive in this world. 
And remember that uh, they spelled out how the forms had to exist in another world besides this one, in an invisible realm that we only perceive through the mind rather than in a visible world that we perceive through the senses. Uh, so to say that the forms were pure, remember, was to say that they have only one property, which is more or less a definition of a form. It's an abstract or absolute quality. So if you take the orangeness of this chair and we separate it from the plasticness and the chairness uh, and the shape uh, and the texture and the smell and the taste of the chair, all its other properties, uh, we will uh, have gotten a form. Material objects, remember we said, were impure in that they're always a conglomeration of different properties. Uh, and it's important to note that that explains their imperfection. Right? The reason why uh, this chair isn't perfectly orange or perfectly a chair or perfectly circle, nothing in this world is perfect, is because in the material world there are always other properties, other contrary properties, always interfering with the purity or the chairness of this. Uh, so Plato uh, actually held a version of the, uh, the, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Have right? you heard that, that uh, disorder you know, increases in the universe and eventually all order will break down? Right? So if we watch this chair long enough, because it's not just chairness, it's also made of atoms and molecules of certain sorts and of plastic and of metal, uh, eventually the forces and the properties, the inherent properties of those particular chemicals and those particular atoms will interfere with the chairness and eventually the chair will break down into its constituent parts into again those contrary properties which are now sort of in this unhappy marriage or unhappy combination of chairness and we have to put energy into things to get them to stick together right, into, into complex forms and naturally they break down. Right? That's why this world is that Heracletian flux of movement back and forth from contrary to contrary because it's always a mixture of different properties that are always fighting against one another uh, this is the, the, the world, uh, another one of the theories of love, right, that was talked about in the symposium, is the world is composed of strife and love, right? Uh, the, forms, we aim, the, the forms aim at unity or love or a combination of different properties, whereas in this world there's always a strife between these contrary warring properties. And that explains how the forms were transcendent, right? They're outside of space and they're outside of time. This particular chair exists right here and now at this particular location. Whereas the form of chairness exists, you know, wherever there are chairs, we've got an example of the form of chairness. It's not limited to one particular place. And in fact, it'd be much more accurate to say that the, um, the forms don't exist at any place whatsoever. Because right? even if I destroyed all the chairs in the world, even though there are no longer any dinosaurs in the world, uh, the form of dinosaurness, the form of chairness still exists. Uh, so even if somebody really hated triangles and we, you know, they took it into some you know, tyrant or dictator, decided to destroy all the triangles in the world, uh, at night, you know, in my closet, when no one was looking, I could still cut out more new triangles. You know, I could bring those things into existence. Right? Uh, because uh, the form, or the, which is the potentiality for their being, uh, already exists. Again, things don't pop into existence from nowhere. So the form, right, the property itself, the potentiality for their being must already exist as an explanation for the possibility of my bringing them into being. So you know, that was important because right, the secret to the Plato's view of happiness, remember, was that there were these unchanging, right, completely uh, unified, completely self-same and perfect things which I could latch myself onto uh, and that would save me from the flux uh, and the, the, the flow of this world right, that always ended in death and in uh, some type of temporary nature. Right. Questions about how the forms are pure or how they're transcendent? These are pretty basic ideas. You may have known those already from your first year discussion of the forms. 
right, let's talk about how the forms are archetypes and how they're ultimately real. Right? And for our purposes, we'll probably discuss those together. Right? There's going to be a little... You can put a little asterisk here in your, in your notes because we're going to add a little... Uh, after we uh, talk a little bit more about the cave metaphor and kind of bring it up to date, uh, we'll find that there's another way in which we can distinguish between saying the forms are archetypes and saying that they're ultimately be real. There'll be a little technical difference between the two. Uh, but for the most part... Uh, there are different ways of saying the same thing. And they both point out uh, the essential feature of the relationship between forms and material objects that's suggested in the cave metaphor. Right? That the forms, we've already talked about it, right? that the forms are related to, to things in this world the way an image is related to the thing that it's an image of. So we said that falling in love with the TV set and, and kissing it, uh, when what you really love is the person who's pictured on the TV set, it's just like falling in love with a hamburger or a person in this world, right? And desiring it, and what you really want is the form of hamburgerness, right? Or the form of, of that person, right? The forms involved, right? So this is an image, right? This is a copy, uh, and the form of chairness is the real thing, which this is a copy of. So you've all seen, I think, the setup of the the cave metaphor. And on the exam, you'll be required to be able to draw at least an outline of how the cave metaphor is set up. Uh, and explain what the various elements of it represent and how it explains how the forms are types and how they're ultimately real. Um, there's a lot that goes into the, the, the metaphor, the, uh, the story, uh, when the guy escapes and then comes back in. Uh, we'll leave that aside for now. That'll, that actually is a, 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 another representation of the divided line, the stages that he goes through. But let's just talk about the basic setup. Right, so we're supposed to imagine, kind of hard to imagine, isn't it, that these people were chained up in this... Uh, uh, cave so tightly you know, that they couldn't even look at their own bodies. They couldn't look at the people next to them. I had to figure out how they would have eaten without realizing you know, that they were, you know, they had real mouths and there was real food. But you know, we'll set all that aside. We'll see that there's an updated version of it that you're all familiar with. It'll make it somewhat more plausible. And so we've got these prisoners who, of course, are uh, supposed to represent us. Right now, we're in the cave, right? Cave chair, cave table. Uh, and there's a, a wall in front of them, which, they're, again, their heads are chained so that they can't look at anything but that wall. Um, there's a little path here. And then there's a fire which casts the light in the room. And various different things are carried back and forth on that path. People will walk by carrying various things. Right? Uh, and the light from the fire casts the various different images and shadows. And just as the people in that cave, because they've never seen anything else, right, uh, mistake the objects on those shadows, or the shadows and the images on the, uh, the cave wall, as being the real things, when really the things behind them are the real sources of the properties and the outlines and the shapes uh, that they see. Uh, so in this world, we mistake these objects for the real things when really they're merely images or shadows of the forms. So these <coughs> represent the material objects. And these, of course, represent the forms. The prisoner is us. Right, we don't worry too much about what the, the fire is. You, know, you can go too far in, in, in examining what, what every little element uh, of, the, the, of a metaphor means. 
so, just as we said, things in this world never satisfy us. You know, we can imagine the people in the cave saying, you know, I just don't understand it. Right? I, I, I get all, I got all these shadow Cadillacs, I got these shadow food, I got these shadow girlfriends or boyfriends, and they're just not doing it for me. Right? I'm still, I'm still hungry. I still feel the need. I still feel the lack. Uh, it's fairly obvious, right? That it's because what they really want, right, are the objects that are really behind them. So let's point out a couple features of the cave metaphor, right? that are referred to by saying the forms are archetypes or saying that they're ultimately real. Did you know the word archetype? Maybe you know its Latin version. Right? Prototype? What's a prototype? The yeah, the first of a kind, right? So an archetype, uh, to say that the forms are archetypes is to say that they're the first perfect examples right, of the properties that they exemplify. That means that they actually have those properties. The form of chair is actually a chair. It's the perfect chair. It's not a wood. It's not that. It's so perfect. It's not made out of wood. It's not made of paper. Not made of anything. It's just plain chair. Uh, so to say that the forms are archetypes is to say that they're the first perfect models, the first perfect examples, uh, the, the the paradigms right, of the properties they exemplify. They really are similar. Now, see, that'll be a very important, right, for, uh, as we'll see later when we compare Plato's cave metaphor to uh, modern versions of uh, the cave metaphor. And to say that they're ultimately real, right, is almost to say the same thing, right, to say that the forms are the really real things and that material objects are merely images or copies. So the, this is the archetype, right, the model, right, and... This is the thing that's a copy or image of it. Right? So the real reality of the thing rests over here, and these things on the wall right, are uh, derivatively real. So it's important to recognize, he's saying that this, this chair is not the real reality. Right? There's a more real chair, a more perfect chair in us, right? just like there's a more perfect circularity or triangularity of which every circle and triangle in this world is an image or copy. So this isn't the real chair, right? It's a, uh, a, an image of a more real archetype or paradigm. But he's not saying this is completely unreal. You shouldn't mistake it. He's not saying this is merely an illusion. Right? Uh, it's a real shadow right? on the wall in the cave, the real wall. Right? Those are really shadows. Right? Those are really images. Right? So to say that the forms are the ultimate realities is to say that all of the reality that we do find in the objects of this world is borrowed reality. Anything that you see on this wall, of course, there's some things that aren't borrowed, but we'd say they're really real. You know, there's cracks in the wall. There may be, you know, like in the, in the theater when somebody throws a soda against the, the, the thing. You know, there may be stains on the on the screen or something. Right? But we wouldn't say those are a real part of the picture. We ignore those parts of reality. Everything that's real and everything that's interesting right, about that we find on the reality of the screen doesn't really exist on the screen. It's borrowed from this more ultimate reality, which is cast in the shadow. So everything that's real about this chair, everything I can say about it, I can say it's orange, I can say it's rectangular, I can say it's made of metal, I can talk about its various different properties. Everything that I can say about that isn't really in the chair. If I want to understand it, I'm not going to understand it by looking at the chair. I have to find the source of that reality that I find in that chair someplace else. Just as everything that you fall in love with when you see something on the TV screen, is it really there on the TV screen? Right? If you go poking inside the TV screen trying to find the little people or trying to find the person that you love, right, you would be making a mistake because the images on a TV screen 
are not the ultimate reality. They're merely borrowed reality. Everything you like, everything you find interesting on the TV screen is not there on the TV screen. It's really someplace else. Uh, and that's exactly what Plato means by saying the forms are the ultimate reality. Everything else is borrowed reality. Everything else is related to the forms, just the way an image is related to the thing it's an image of. All right, we're going to come back to the cave metaphor and update it a little bit later. Right? We'll see how Plato would use it to uh, answer the most common objections that someone might raise uh, to the idea that this world isn't real and that there's a more real reality beyond this one. Right, but let's talk about the two um, most important of the six properties and the most difficult ones, the, how the forms are causes and how they're systematically interconnected. And in some sense, this one already refers to how they're causes. In some sense, anything I want to know about what goes on on the cave wall really has as its cause, or its because, right, its explanation, um, what's really going on over here. Right? So if I want to know, you know, how come that ball or how come that shadow bounced off the other shadow? I'm not going to find the explanation here. The cause of anything being the way it is is always going to rest over here in the real ultimate reality. Right, but let me tell you another story that's not in your reading that will help you make sense of both the sun metaphor and the dividing line, two of the more difficult parts of, of Plato's Republic. Uh, in his later dialogues, in the, uh, the Timaeus, one of Plato's last dialogues, Plato gives a little myth, a little story of how the world was created. And you may have wondered, you know, how is it that um, if we were once whole, how is it that we uh, get split apart into our separate little individual cells? Uh, and if uh, everything in this world is merely an image of these more permanent forms, how did they ever come to be these images? And in the Timaeus, uh, he tells sort of a story. And it's not clear whether it's supposed to be literally true or that it's another one of those metaphorical or symbolic stories. Uh, but this is what he says. Uh, in the beginning of time, all that existed was the one big thing. Remember, every, at one time, everything was, was whole, was part of one big ocean of being. That was part of this big form. Uh, and Plato calls that form uh, the form of the good. So if you think of, if a form is what two things share in common, right? the form of redness is what two red things share in common, the form of chair is what two chairs share in common, what would the form, it's sort of strange that he even calls it the form of the good, because what would the one big form that everything, everything in the world comes from, what would it be? The form is what things share in common, so the form of color is what all colors share in common, even red and blue and green and yellow then the form of the good would be what everything in the world shares in common. And what does everything in the world share in common? Ducks and frogs, Albert Einstein, and uh, Osama bin Laden, Hans Gum and, and Corvettes. So how does, that, that, seems, that seems sort of puzzling though, isn't it? We'll see that, 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 that you know, what I say, Osama bin Laden and Hans Gum, right? Good is, uh, isn't usually the first word that, spins, you know, that comes to your mind. Would it be that they all have one? Yeah, so in some sense, um, is that what you were going to say? Yeah. Yeah, so in some sense, uh, it's the form of form or order or structure itself. Uh, because the one thing that all beings have in common is they have some type of form, some type of order, some type of structure. Uh, so even pond scum, right? And of course, the, the less good it is, 
the less form or order and structure it has, the more disorganized it is, the better it is, the more form or order or structure it has. But what everything shares in common is some type of order or form. So the form of good is sort of the form of form itself, the form of order or structure. And by calling it the form of goodness, uh, he's suggesting that uh, uh, something that you may have heard in, in Keats's famous poem, right? Uh, on a Grecian urn, right? That beauty is truth and truth is beauty and that's all you need to know in this world. Right? Uh, he was suggesting that the, the beauty and the goodness of things, everything that we desire of things, uh, comes from their form or order or structure. And so not only is the form the ultimate source of the reality of things, it's the ultimate object of desire. It's the, it's the, the ultimate source of goodness. And whenever we, we desire or love something or appreciate it, we're always appreciating or loving or desiring some type of order or structure or form. Right, so the first form was this form of the good, the form of this one big thing. And it's hard to imagine you know, how you could have, how everything in the world, right, as different as the things I mentioned, could all be a copy of that uh, one big thing. Uh, but in essence, the method by which the world came into creation was having that one big thing right, that was so so full of order and structure and form sort of overflow into uh, different copies right, or images of itself. Um, so the first thing that's going to happen is that the form of the good is going to make a couple different copies of itself. And so imagine you know, the form of the good sitting around and it sticks its head in the copy machine in one way. Right? And that, would take, that wouldn't take a picture of all of it. Right? It would just take a picture of one side of his head, his ear or something. Right? Uh, and then he would take a, you know, he'd stick his head in the copy machine another way. Right? Whenever, you, whenever you make a copy or a picture of something, you don't capture all of the form of that thing. Right? You only capture a certain aspect, a certain particular part of the form or the order of structure of that thing. So a good example that I uh, that to think of right, that I often use to explain this is imagine a cube. Right? Uh, a cube seems like a pretty simple form. The form of the good is going to be much more complex. It's the most complex form you know that, that could ever possibly exist. The for a cube is a very simple form, but imagine all the different images of it that you could make in the sand. Right? You could stick the point in the sand, and you make a little diamond. You could stick one edge in the sand, and you have a square. Right? You could stick uh, one little edge on the, in the sand and you have a line, you can stick that edge in the sand and squirrel it around and you'd make a circle. Uh, and it's pretty easy to see that if you fiddle around with a cube or a block in the sand, you can make a zillion different images. Right? And all of them, if we ask, so where does this line come from? Where does this line come from? Where does this line come from? What's the ultimate source of the order or form that I find in each of these things? It would turn out that all of them were just different images, different partial graphs right, of the one big form that existed in the cube. So in the same way, we're supposed to imagine that the form of the good right, is the ultimate source of the order and structure that uh, we find in all things, and that in one way or another, that the form of the good sort of pushed itself into the sand, right, or pushed itself into, uh, you know, put its head in the copy machine and created the universe by making different, uh, overflowing into different particular images of itself. Right, so the first thing that's going to happen is that the form of the good is going to um, make different basic types of order and structure. So you might have you know, geometrical order versus you know, the order of human societies, right? or you might have uh, order in space versus order in time. You know, think of the highest categories of being that you can think of. Right? 
And then, you know, those might be split up into plane figures and three-dimensional figures, or into circles and squares, or closed figures and open figures. So the first thing that's going to happen is that the form of the good is going to break off into other basic types of form. The first thing that's going to happen, before we even make any objects, you're first going to make some molds. And because besides the form of the good, the only other thing that existed was what corresponds you know, to the cave wall, is a bunch of chaotic matter, some sort of primordial goo. Uh, and again, we identify being with order or structure, because just as if you turn on the TV and all that's on there is just because chaotic snow, you wouldn't even say that anything's on. So you wouldn't even call this being. Like, it's not anything. You can't, doesn't have any form, doesn't have any structure. It's just some primordial goo or some primordial clay. It's like the snow on the TV screen. Right? And before any form was actually applied to that chaotic matter, right, first of all, you had to make a bunch of molds. You had one mold, and you used that mold to make a bunch of other molds. Right? And as you get down, right, go down the, the, uh, the process of creation, the molds got more particular and more specific. And so this would be color, and this would be red and blue. This would be you know, geometrical properties, and this would be square and circle. At every, at every stage, we're making a copy of a copy of a copy. Right? So you stick your head in the copy machine once, and you take that copy and put it in the copy machine again, and catch one aspect of that, and you get another image or copy. And of course, this would go on many more stages than I can fit on the, uh, on the chalkboard. But then there's going to come a big break, right, where we actually stop making more molds, and we start applying these molds to this chaotic matter, this primordial clay, to actually make objects. So we take the form of redness and we'd make you know, a red eraser and a red sweater. We take the form of blueness and take a blue, make a blue car and a blue uh, piece of plastic. Make some circuit, some particular circles like the sun or the moon. Uh, make some particular squares, you know, like salt crystals and things like that. And here, this diagram is is. Uh, oversimplified, right, because we're leaving out something. Because what do you know about, for example, this chair? This is the form, say we take, this is the form of orange, and here's this orange chair. You know, this di you can see this diagram we simplified isn't completely correct, because the form of chairness, or that this chair doesn't just come from the form of orange, right? It also comes from the form of chair, the form of rectangularity. So to make a particular object, we'd have to take a bunch of forms, a bunch of molds and all glom them onto the same clay and form it one way to get the chairness, another way to get the plasticness, another way to get the squareness. So is that the interconnectedness that you were talking about, like why you can't set it up like that? Or well, we're going to see that the that we're we're weaving, we're not making the diagram uh, like that uh, true because we want to capture the real interconnectedness, right? Because there is no real interconnectedness in the chair. That's why the chair isn't real, right? We can separate the orangeness, we can separate the rectangularity, we can separate the metalness from the chairness. I'll take a sledgehammer and I'll bust it up and the chair will be gone, right? But the orangeness and the metalness and all those things will be gone. So that's not the interconnectedness there. There's no interconnectedness in the chair. That's why we leave that out of our diagram. The systematic interconnectedness is this, right? It's the family tree, the genealogy of being, right? Uh, this diagram that I'm drawing explaining the relationship of particulars to forms, to higher forms, to the form of the good, that is the systematic interconnectedness of the forms. 
And we'll see that even though you, I, if you haven't heard this story, you may not have seen this diagram unless you, this diagram's in the reading as well. Right? Uh, this diagram, in fact, is the divided line, as we'll see. And then this isn't the end of the story right? because uh, Plato believed that in our eyes and our sense organs there was a little bit of this chaotic matter, a little bit of this undifferentiated, like the, the, the um, material on a photographic film left over. And that whenever we see something, uh, another image of that thing is actually impressed into our mind. So when I look at this chair, I actually see you know, lots of different images of the chair. I look at a table, I see lots of different subjective images existing in my eyes and my sense organs in that particular chair. <coughs> so there's yet another level of copies of copies of copies. So when I uh, see this chair, I'm actually seeing you know, a copy in my mind of this chair, which is itself a copy of the form of the good, which is a copy of some higher form, which is a copy of the, the form of the chair, which is a copy of some higher form, which is ultimately a copy of the form of the good. And so reality is this hierarchy or stratification of being of different levels of reality that come from the different copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of, copies of the form of the good. And that's why everything, you know, even Osama bin Laden or pond scum or you know, ticks are the worst possible thing that you can imagine, Insofar as it exists at all, it's got a piece of the good. Because everything, insofar as it has any being or reality, any form or structure, is in some way or another a copy of the form of the good. Things that are bad are really just bad. Whether badness or evil, Plato would say, is merely just a lack or an absence of form or structure. It's a bad copy. It's, been, it's lost so much of the form and order of structure in this process of copying, of copying, of copying, of copying, that there's hardly any form or structure that can be made out. So in, in we'll see in, in Christianity uh, the God was associated with uh, the form of the good, the one thing right, from which all things flowed. Uh, so in Saint Augustine we'll see that the, uh, and in uh, early Christian theologians as well as in Islamic uh, theologians right, who got uh, Plato and Aristotle uh, from the Greeks. Uh, God is associated with the one and the good, and they're very influenced by this particular part of Plato. In particular, we'll see the, the, the metaphor of the sun as sim and the, of illumination for symbolizing this process of flowing down from the form of the good, and then our tracing back up that process. So this diagram is very important right? uh, because this is going to the diagram that you're going to use to explain both the two ways in which the forms are causes of all things and the systematic interconnectedness of the forms. Right, the systematic interconnectedness of the forms may be easiest because this is it. And you may have noticed, as I said, that this is the divided line. Okay, there's a lot more going on in the divided line than we'll talk about. And it's, it's based upon certain mathematical theories that Plato had gotten from the Pythagoreans as well. It's divided in uh, what's called the golden section. Um, but there's a smaller region. It's kind of the two main, main regions. Right? Up here is the form of the good. And you've got higher forms. First of all, there's the big region of the forms and then material objects. And then this region is split up again into two unequal regions of higher forms and lower forms. And we won't go into the distinction between them. Uh, and also then to objects and images. And we can only have knowledge of the forms. We can only have belief or opinion of 
material objects. And there are, he also categorizes the different types of knowledge, different cognitive states associated with each of these regions as well. And we're not going to go into the details of the divided line. But you can see that this diagram right, is just the divided line turned on its end. And now we've actually spelled out you know, why there are these different categories or levels, because there are different levels of copies, different stages in this process. So we've got the higher forms, which are the first copies of the form of the good, the lower forms, which are copies of those copies. Then we've got the objects, material objects, which are impure conglomerations of, of copies of a bunch of different forms. And then we have, finally, sense images, which are copies and copies and copies of the copies of the form of the good. So whenever we think, that's what we're doing. We're following the trails, like the, the, the breadcrumbs, right? The, the form of the good left a bread, you know, a trail of breadcrumbs of being, right, in creating all things. And whenever we think and trace out the connections between ideas, you may have wondered, you know, how is it you may have sit on the uh, wait talking with somebody and wondered you know, how your conversation goes from one thing to another thing and to another thing, right? You were sort of lost in the woods, you know, following the various different connections, right, between the ideas and forms. Right, that constituted the subject matter of your conversation. So the systematic interconnectedness of the forms and the divided line is uh, this genealogical family tree right, of the uh, structure that's left over from the process of coming into being of reality from the form of the good through this copying process. And you should note that its structure is dialectic. Right, we've been looking at it from our dialectic from the way up starting with subjective images and putting them together to get more objective. But we saw in the argument from rec recollection that the correct way of looking at it, and the better way of looking at it, is the, the way down. Right? That's how things actually came into being. Right? We'll call that the order of being. We've been looking at it from our point of view, what's called the order of knowledge. Starting at the bottom, we've already separated from the form of the good. We're down here with the images. And we want to trace our way up the systematic interconnectedness of the forms and back up to the form of the good, back up to knowledge of the whole. So the systematic interconnectedness of the forms just is the dialectic structure that we talked about. I look at the chair from two different points of view, and I come up with my view of, I synthesize those together and get my idea of this particular chair. I look at this chair and then another chair and a bunch of other chairs, and from those subjective uh, views, I get my idea of chairs. And I look at chairs and couches and I get my idea of furniture. And I look at you know, furniture and other objects and I get my idea of the physical object, my ideas of physics. Progressing higher and higher to more objective from subjective ideas. But now we know that that's not how it actually came into being. Right? That dialect, we've been looking at dialectic in the wrong direction. Right? We've been thinking that we put two different subjective images together to get the objective one. But now we see that in the order of being, the way that it really happened, it was the opposite direction. Right? The dialectic is the, the, the process of the, uh, is the, the structure of the, the birthing process of being. It's the way in which the form of the good, the one big structure in being and reality, broke off or split into different um, images of itself. So the sun 
metaphor that you read in the Republic is actually a way of representing the two different directions that we can look at this diagram. The sun is supposed to be a symbol for the form of the good. He is not literally a sun worshiper. And you may have noticed already, right, that when the, the, the prisoner from the cave escapes, he goes through a process of first of all looking at images of things in the water and looking at objects, and then finally looking at heavenly objects until he can finally look at the sun, right? That process he goes through represents these different stages in the divided line. And, and I said this was a very important uh, image, both in uh, Islamic and in Christian theology. Uh, the primary mode by which we understood the nature of grace was, was uh, through the use of, of uh, Plato's sun metaphor, or the, what's called the doctrine of illumination. So the sun provides two different types of things, light and energy. So just as the all, you know, your, your, your circle of life and the things you learn in biology in grade school, really all living things have as their ultimate source of life or energy, the energy that comes from the sun. So every, all the energy comes from plants and herbivores eat the plants and carnivores eat the herbivores and ultimately all the energy is borrowed from the sun. So in the same way, we said the ultimate source of form or order or structure in the order of being you look at the way down, ultimately everything gets its being from being a copy of a copy of a copy of the ultimate source of form or order, which was the form of the good. Right, the more difficult one to understand is the second one. Because the forms are also going to be the source or the cause of all of our knowledge of the external world. Again, it might help you to think of this as a because. There are the explanations of everything being the way that it is. Whenever I understand something, whenever I say something about anything, I'm always talking about a form and I'm explaining why the thing is what it is in terms of that form. So all of the intelligibility of objects comes from the forms. So when I look at two things, we saw if this is basically, if you understood the argument from recollection, then you understand the second way in which the forms are causes of things. Whenever I recognize this and this as being pictures of the same thing, it's because I'm remembering that they're both chairs. And whenever I see two chairs as chairs, it's because I'm remembering the, uh, the form of chairness. So whenever I recognize <coughs> the similarity between chairs and, and other couches, because I'm remembering the form of furniture. So that's really pointing out that the direction of my knowledge is always downwards. I'm always being illuminated from above. And the metaphor for that was the way in which light is necessary for seeing. Like the visibility of a thing doesn't come from the object itself. In order to see this, I'm not just getting the seeing of this object from looking from the chair. Uh, if I turn off the lights, the chair will still be there and I don't see. I need some additional help. Right? Uh, and that help comes in the form of the light, which provides the illumination, uh, which actualizes the potential visibility that's in the chair and allows me to actually see it. So the doctrine of grace, that there was something necessary in us, we needed help, right? Not on the, it wasn't our salvation, didn't really come from our own resources uh, and had to be helped from some uh, force from above, 
is similar to Plato's view that knowledge is impossible merely by looking at particular objects. I never learned what my mother was. I never learned what dog was if all I had to do was just look at particular objects. I have to be illuminated by the form or order which is flowing through all being down into that object. And whenever I catch the form, what I'm catching is not there in the object. That's why it'd be stupid to kiss it, you know, the screen or kiss the picture. And what I'm really seeing is coming from above, the ultimate source of that order or structure. All right, that's a that's a lot to absorb. Any questions about the <laughs> the how the forms are archetypes or how they're ultimately real? Again, I can't I, I, I can't under uh, I can't uh, stress how influential and important this is. If you understand this, you'll understand most of Aristotle. You'll understand uh, uh, most of uh, Neoplatonism. You'll understand most of what Michelangelo thought the nature of beauty was, and why he thought there was already a form hidden in the stone, and all he had to do was reveal it. Uh, that the job of the artist was to reveal this hidden form, which had already been flowing down from the one or the good before. I have a question: Why would the good ever, which is itself order, why would the good ever want to, or not want to? Why would it ever produce disorder? That's a uh, why would it, well the, the 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 problem of disorder is easier to explain than than the genus question. Why it would ever make copies at all, right? The disorder, it turns out, doesn't come from the form of the good. The disorder, just as darkness does not really come from the light, darkness is just the absence of light. Uh, so the disorder came from uh, the the interference of the chaotic matter. Right? Uh, so if, if my paper is crumply or if my toner is out, right, I'm going to get bad copies when I stick my head in the copy machine. But that's not my fault. Right? Uh, that's the fault of the medium. Right? So evil is it is due to this chaotic matter or due to imperfections in the matter and due to the degradation of the very copying process itself. But if we ask, so why would the, remember the form of the good is supposed to be perfect, it's supposed to be fulfilled, it's supposed to be happy in itself, like the stars, passionless and pitiless and perfect. It's the ultimate satisfaction. So it doesn't need anything, it doesn't lack anything, it's not going to feel any love in the sense that we feel love. So it's puzzling, you know, why it would, why would it just sit there and be complete in itself? And I'll, I can only tell you what Plato says in the Timaeus. He said that it was, it was so full of goodness right, uh, that out of a type of love, it overflowed in its goodness uh, to fill every empty space in the universe. He said it, the, the good would have been jealous right, if it held back any degree or any possible image of its goodness. So the, the, the image is of uh, something that's so full of being that it has to overflow and create every possible copy. And that was one of the, it's called the principle of plenitude. That's why there are ticks and bacteria, because God would have been jealous if there was some possible image, uh, some possible you know, uh, crack of darkness in the universe that wasn't filled by this light of illumination, he would have been holding back. And so even in these lower and lower and lower forms, right, there uh, has to be some uh, type of goodness or some type of order or structure. So with, with, with that in hand, let's go back to the cave metaphor and see if we can answer some of the objections that I'm sure are spinning around in your head right now. And keep in mind when you write these down, these are bad objections. We're going to explain how Plato is going to answer them in about two seconds. So on the exam, you know, when, you're, when you're arguing against Plato, these are pro I'm warning you not to use these objections because these are ones that Plato can answer in about two seconds. Um, but you're familiar with the, with the cave metaphor already, right? Uh, because uh, even though it's hard for us to, to believe 
that these guys could be trapped in this cave so they couldn't even look at the screen. Uh, if we update it a little, it's probably pretty easy to imagine. And imagine that instead of uh, being chained down, that as soon as they were born, we hooked, them, hooked their brains up you know, to a virtual reality machine, up to some video game, right? So that instead of getting any uh, sensations or uh, input from the external world, they got this artificially constructed world uh, that was generated by some computer. Yeah, so the, the matrix, we'll see. In fact, we'll trace its genealogy later. It actually comes more directly from uh, Descartes' meditations through what's called the dream argument. When we get to the dream argument, we'll talk about the matrix in more detail. Uh, but the matrix is just Plato's cave metaphor. So let's imagine that our uh, people are trapped uh, in the matrix and that they've never experienced anything with their real body, with their real senses. Instead, they've seen uh, a computer-generated virtual reality that's been pumped directly into their brain their entire lives. There, it's much easier to see how they would mistake things that were merely images or copies for the real world. And remember, Plato tells the story of you know, the guy who escapes, the philosopher is supposed to be the guy who escapes his chains and goes out into the, the real world, kind of like Morpheus or, or Neo or whatever, uh, and then has to come back and try to convince those people uh, would they be able to? Would they believe you when you came back? No. Yeah, you couldn't. In fact, it would be hard to even. Uh, this is what's strange uh, uh, about the, the story in the Matrix is that this Neo guy has a sense that there's something wrong with his world already. Right? Uh, that's something that Plato would believe. That we already sort of know that we're in the cave metaphor, since we feel there's something wrong or something strange or lacking in the world that we exist in. But you should note. So I mean, the first you know the first objection that you might have to Plato's argument might be something you know, the guy would come down and said, you know, "Look, buddy, you know you're in this is not the real world. These are just images, right? This is just you're just in a cave, right? Uh, or you're just in the Matrix. None of this stuff is real." Right? And he might say, "Okay, you know, so show me the real world. You know, where is this real world? Can I, can I touch it? Can I feel it? Can I see it? Can you give me a map to it?" First of all, you should know. Right? If I'm going to talk to the people in the Matrix, what do I have to do? I can't, I, have to be, I can't go to their body, you know, that's sitting in that pool of yuck or whatever it is, and that's hooked up to that cable, right? Because they're not going to hear me. They don't, they don't, they've never perceived anything with their real ears or their real eyes. Right? So the, the, the philosopher who escapes the cave has to come back down into the cave. And, if, and since they, they see their reality right, as the reality on that screen, I can't even say, you know, like, you know buddy, look behind you, right? There's a whole other world there, right? Because, you know, they're not even going to see... Uh, know what the world be, word behind means. They're going to say, what do you mean behind? There's no such thing as behind. The world is flat. Right? When, when the people in the cave, you know, when they saw two people pass each other, what would they see? see pa you say, people can walk in front of and behind people. Well, they, but they, never, they wouldn't even understand that. What, they'd say, no, you know, people don't. There's no front of behind. People are permeable, right? They, you know, they, you know, they, they bump into each other, they co-mingle for a little bit, and then they, you know, they go on their way. Right? They wouldn't even... You'd have to get them out of their reality, get out of, them out of their cave reality, to even be able to see or to understand right, the possibility of some other reality. So it should be, should be obvious that your first objection, that you can't see the forms, I can't see it. Show me, you might say, show me a map. Where can I find this world of forms? Where can I open the door, right, besides taking the red pill or whatever it was, the green pill or whatever, right? Uh, you know, how can I get to the world of forms? And the point is, you can't get there from here. No matter how far you travel in this world, you'll still be in the matrix. No matter how far you go on the cave wall, you'll still be in the cave. So that objection, we can see, doesn't really have any force because Plato's got another explanation. Even if you were in the matrix, 
and we all could, would admit that you weren't in the real reality, you still wouldn't be able to see the real world. Everywhere you looked and, so, and, and tried to touch with your senses, you'd still be in the matrix. Right? The other objection you might have is you know, that things in this world, you know, they feel real. You know, they have a, a type of causality. You know, they, they, they can do stuff. Uh, so how can they have, you know, the, the matrix world would surely seem real to you. So you may say, you know, this world feels real. It has causality. It has substance. Right? It has power. I can do stuff with it. Right? Uh, but again, if you were in the matrix, where would the power actually be coming from? So the guy in the, in the cave might, you know, be watching a game of cave baseball and say, you know, what do you mean this shadow isn't real? Look at what happens to that ball when I hit the shadow of the ball with the shadow of the bat. It just zips right off of it. But where does the real causality come from? It's, it's the real bat and the real ball. When, you are, when you're playing a video game on the computer, it can feel to you, you know, like, like uh, the, you're pushing over the barrel or something, and you got a, a, a bat and you're knocking things over. It can feel like that thing has causality. Like it feels like your little arrow on the mouse is actually pushing down the button. But that doesn't have any causality at all. It's just a bunch of lights on the screen. The real causality that's, that's happening is, is existing inside the computer. So the real causality in the world of the matrix, right, uh, is not in that world at all. It's in the computer. So when you get recognized, you know, there is no spoon, and then he can finally control all the laws of nature. It's when he realizes that the things in that world don't, aren't their ultimate source of their causality. The real causality rests in the computer, uh, and that if he can control that causality, then he can control you know, the, uh, the course of events in the, in the fake world. So just the fact that things in this world appear to have causality doesn't prove that they're real. Because if you were in the matrix world, they would appear to have causality, but their ultimate reality, the ultimate source of their causality would be in a different world. And then the last one, you know, the last thing that convinces us that this world is real is, you know, you have to eat or you'll die. Right? You don't know, think this chair is real? I whack you over the head and you're bleeding on the ground, right? Then we'll see how real you think it is, right? Uh, but again, right, should that convince us we're real in the matrix? That was the unrealistic part of the matrix. They made it so that if you died in the matrix, right, then you died in reality. But there's no reason why that had to be the case. Right? So you, know, you, you can get into a video game and somebody asks you where you are, and you can say, "Yo, that's me right there. I'm about to, this guy's about to crush me. Right? Um, but just because if you don't believe that this world is real, if you're in the matrix, right, then being killed in the matrix doesn't prove that that world is real because it doesn't kill the real you. Right? It's just killing the virtual you. It's just killing the you in the video game. Right? So we're in a video game right now, Plato says. Right? Uh, you know, we don't get you know, a reset button or we can't get extra energy. Right? Although if the reincarnation thing is true, then we, there is a reset button. Right? You die and you get to play again. Right? You get a free game and you get to keep on playing until you learn how to escape uh, the video game. Right? So uh, most of the, the, the objections that you might have raised... Right? Uh, don't apply to the matrix. Right? So you should be asking yourself, uh, would you, can you tell? Right? How would you answer Plato if he suggested that right now uh, you were in the cave, you were in some version of the matrix, and that the reality that uh, corresponded to the world outside of us was precisely the world of form that he's been talking about. Right? So uh, enjoy uh, your next couple of days and we'll see you on Friday, whether they're real or whether you're in the matrix. <laughs>